Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Hey, Joe. Hello. Joe, we have, for the first time, I do really feel in my guts, in the news cycle, that we are entering a real post-Trump relevancy. Uh, We have a lot of very juicy, highly anticipated Trump manifestos coming out. We have Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book. We have... Maggie Haberman's book, On the Horizon. And I know that we will talk about all of those things and all of those books and maybe even have some of those authors on our show. Uh, but we have a new profile in Vanity Fair that came out this week from our colleague, Gabe Sherman, about Ron DeSantis. And it feels to me like with these definitive books finally coming out with a political star, like him or hate him, on the rise with all of the investigations reaching what seems to be a determinate future, are we post-Trump? God, you're almost afraid to say so. Sure. But there are people starting to say so anyway. And um, it definitely feels like there's a pivot because we have a midterm coming up. And the midterms tell you the value of Trump politically. He's been, every time he's sort of uh, promoted somebody, we're going to find out whether those people's fortunes went up or down. Uh, We've seen polling where Ron DeSantis, who Gabe's profiled uh, this week, uh, is well above Trump's among Republicans. And there is a sense, I think, that uh, we're hitting kind of um, the late episodes of the Trump show, right? It's it's, it's getting a little bit uh, weedy, this story, and repetitive, and you're wondering whether the writers have anything more up their sleeve, and it doesn't really look like it. But also, by the way, just another obvious one is the fact of Ron DeSantis. Somebody out there who's got ambition sees an opportunity, and the opportunity is they see Trump limping around with all these lawsuits, and everybody's getting sick of him. Well, I also think that you have someone who is very much a student of the things that worked for Donald Trump through his very intense study of Fox News, as Gabe describes it. Uh, So he has all of the things, because he has decided that those are his things, that resonate with the Trump voter, but without all of the Trump Michigas, the people who are sick of Trump's antics and the complete chaos that comes around with a Trump in office. But you have all of the policies that I think attracted people to supporting Donald Trump in the first place. The question is, do you have the charisma, right? Donald Trump, I think, and the way I have come to think of it, is is a symptom, right? He's not the thing that started the thing, but he was born out of the thing. But he managed to be of the thing because he's such an effective communicator. That's right, yeah. He's exploiting what was there to be exploited, and he had the charisma and the TV profile to do Correct. it, right? Now, DeSantis... 
has made himself part of that. He has very calculatedly uh, become a major figure in the anti-woke, anti-democrat, Fox News blabbing. Yes, that is is very much his world now, and he has definitely been a rising star in that arena. But by all accounts, certainly by Gabe's reporting and everything else I have read and heard, uh, he's not charming, and in no. fact, he is the opposite. And I have, n- I am, I am thirty. I think I'm thirty three years old, and so I don't have a vast history of presidents in my lifetime. But I cannot remember a president uh, who was not at all likable, right? That's right? Who was not who was mean to people and didn't like shaking hands and kissing babies. He's and a, a bully. charmless bully. I mean, this is the sort of the that Gabe encapsulates this, you know, where it's asked in in his story, can DeSantis lead the Trump cult of personality with no personality? Right, that's mm-hmm. the key question here. And we do know that behind the scenes, he's got all this ambition, and and he's trashing Trump and saying, you know, he's a merely a TV personality and a moron who has no business running for president. This is a quote from some former DeSantis staffer or something. But um, so. And I want to just um, point out that I think maybe like two or three episodes ago, you and I were talking about DeSantis at some point. And I do have questioned all along whether once he hits the national stage and people actually see him talking for some length, I'm not talking about on Fox News, I'm talking about across the political spectrum, that it's going to be um, anticlimactic because of how unappealing he actually is. You know, I don't think he can. Yes, you can maybe get some of the Trump base, but you won't get all of it because there's some people that were in it just for Trump. The people who are in it for the cruelty and for the meanness and for the xenophobia and all the rest of it, which quite a lot of them, I'm sure, he's not going to get all of them. And then in the middle, I don't think anybody's going to go for this. This okay, stunt I, that he just here's told. Where I disagree, yeah. Here's where I disagree with you. He is a cash cow. He is able to raise so much money and attract. People like Ken Griffin, who's a billionaire yeah, hedge funder, sure. yeah. and it's because he believes in a lot of pro-business policies. And these are people who wouldn't necessarily, at least publicly, support Trump. And maybe they would have voted for Trump and held their nose and say, "Oh, I hate the guy," but I, you know, it, it benefits me financially. These are calculations that people who have a lot of money and no morals make. But you also have people who would want to follow the Trumpian principles, but can't look their family in the eye or look their kids mm-hmm. in the eye or face themselves in the mirror. So they, they didn't vote for him, even though it was against their financial interests. Those people, even though DeSantis supports all the aberrant things that President Trump yep. supported, he's at least, um, the way I have talked about it is he is, Trump is like against the rule of law. I think DeSantis is for all the laws that most Democrats don't agree with, but at least he's lawful. Yes, right. Well, he plays within the lines in a way that correct that you know that he can get away with right now. I will say this: money will buy you a lot, but you know you can't build an entire prosthetic personality with money. You know you can get so far with it, right? But there have been a lot of candidates who people thought were going to go the distance and who had piles of money. Mike Bloomberg, who, you know, weren't able to get past the fact that once people saw him on a screen talking, they were recoiled in horror when they saw and heard how he was. You know, I don't know if that's going to happen with this, but I will say this. He's um, pro-life. 
uh, and we're about to go into this midterm and we're going to find out what the potency of the Dobbs decision will be with women voters. But the, you know, there are polls right now that show DeSantis actually behind Charlie Crist, his Democratic opponent in the governor's mm. race. Now, there was never a question for me this whole summer that he was going to clobber whoever the Democrat was. But this whole stunt he just did with the immigration thing has you know, not helped him, I think, in all you know, parts of the electorate. So where that will end up in two weeks from now, we can't say. But um, he may be counting his chickens before they hatch here. He's got big presidential ambitions, but he also has to win this governor's race. He may very mm-hmm. well do it, and it may be no problem for him. I don't know. But uh, he has he did take a hit with this latest thing that he did. It's interesting because, uh, as Gabe's piece notes, that DeSantis will not announce, likely will not announce until well into 2023. And I think that makes sense given the fact that there have been so many rising stars in both parties, uh, particularly people who are governor, who everyone thought would be a presidential hopeful in their time and their star burned too much before a presidential election. And by the time an election came about, they fizzled. Uh, we're in weird political times and we're also in, I feel like, weird lifetimes where time doesn't matter and the fact that you're able to stay relevant online. This is also a man who creates political headlines and news cycles based on things he does in order to get attention. I think he's very slick and crafty in that way. Mm-hmm. We saw that with the planes to Martha's Vineyard. That was completely a manufactured stunt to get headlines and win favor with his base and fire up kind of everybody. So I don't I don't really see him slowly fading away and becoming irrelevant over the next few months. I think he's too yep. slick to allow that to happen. But we are early. We have lots of time and I'm really fascinated to see how this plays out. Joe Because I think we all need a little bit of a breather after reading that fantastic story on DeSantis and Trump and what could be in 2024, our guest today is just that, right? You had a a very light, very fun, very rocky interview. Rock and roll. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, here at The Hive, we have a lot of rock and roll fans hiding hiding out, and um, I'm one of them. I wrote a biography of Jan Wenner called Sticky Fingers. It's called Sticky Fingers. I recommend it over some other books that might be floating out there. I think you should Same. give it a look. But anyway, there's a uh, in the world of rock and roll in the 60s and 70s, there was another magazine called Cream, and uh, that's C-R-E-E-M. And it was a very irreverent, cheeky magazine. And they their tagline was actually a joke on Rolling Stone. It was called, they called themselves America's only rock and roll magazine. And they would... They were funny, and they were like Mad Magazine crossed with Rolling Stone, and they had just a much more irreverent vibe to them, and they were more associated with punk rock. And they owned a founder, uh, Barry Kramer, uh, died of a drug overdose in the late 70s, and it kind of, over time, was sold off to different owners. But he had a son named J.J. Kramer who vowed that one day he would retake his father's magazine and relaunch it, and he did. And so I invited him on the podcast after after taking a look at his newly launched Cream magazine. And it's a real sexy looking magazine. It's big. It's glossy. It's like a coffee table type thing. It's got a lot of fun stories in it and it's interesting. But his story is specifically interesting just because it's like a uh, sword in the stone kind of tale. You know, he he decides he's going to um, 
revive his dad's magazine one day and but here we are all these years later and what is rock and roll and we all like it but we all also know that Jan Wenner told Maureen Dowd a couple of weeks ago that rock is basically dead. Now, this magazine, Cream, so just to give you a sense of their sense of humor, the first cover is an illustration, and it says, rock is dead and so is print. And mm. so that's their that's their opening gambit, and it's sort of cheeky and gives you a sense of where they're coming from. But um, And they've been making fun of Jan Wenner since he said that a couple of weeks ago. But anyway, we get into all this stuff. It's fun. And uh, if you read the Ron DeSantis uh, profile that Gabe Sherman wrote this week, uh, and then you listen to this, you'll have a balanced life. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> I've got a really special guest on this week. It's a subject that I have a special fondness for, which is uh, rock and roll, rock and roll media. Of course, I wrote this book on uh, Jan Wenner, the founder of Rolling Stone. It's called Sticky Fingers. And uh, so I have spent a lot of uh, hours of my life investigating the culture of the 60s and the 70s and the rock and roll world. And so when I saw that Cream magazine was back in business – or coming back to life, being reanimated. That was interesting to me. And uh, as a result, I've invited on to Inside the Hive this week, J.J. Kramer. He is the son of the founder, uh, Barry Kramer, uh, of Cream Magazine. Have you heard of Cream Magazine? That's the first question we're going to ask uh, J.J. Kramer. Welcome to the program, J.J. Thanks for having me, Joe. Yeah. Um, so for People who are of a certain age and are uh, rock and roll fans, uh, they're going to know Cream Magazine. It's sort of it's it, the logo, the impression of it as a rock and roll force of a certain era. It will be familiar to some people, but lots of other people, including my producer, who I asked moments ago, ever heard of Cream? Never heard of Cream. So I'm sure you're, he's not the only one. So tell tell people what Cream is in a nutshell when they ask you what is Cream. Cream in a nutshell is rock and roll with a capital R. And Cream, in many ways, was Rolling Stones. It's not a younger brother. So that's yeah. that's probably the easiest way to uh, to describe right. it. Well, and it, and one of the snotty things it did right off the bat is when it was founded in 1969, they called themselves America's only rock and roll magazine, which I always took to be like a kind of de facto implicit uh, FU to Rolling Stone. Yeah, a not-so-subtle uh, FU to their friends on the, on the West Coast, no doubt. That's right. And, and Cream, for the, it was from 
Detroit. It came out of Detroit, you know, rock and roll city, Detroit rock city. But this magazine uh, went out of business a while ago. And you tell the story in the first editorial of the first new, brand new spanking issue of Cream magazine that just came out. It's beautiful magazine. It's big. It's rich. There's a lot in it. We'll talk about that. But in the editorial uh, section right at the opening, you tell a little story there. You know, your father died tragically when you were four years old, and you inherited the magazine. Um, But it went through kind of uh, ups and downs, and you lost it for a while and then tried to regain it. And there was um, a, a story you tell in there about when it was owned by somebody else. And you were seeing what they were doing with it because it had been co-opted as a brand to promote other kinds of things. Tell me that story. Yeah, that was um, that was that was probably the most challenging uh, period for me in terms of like my my cream journey. But uh, that was a period of time when when there was other ownership and and they were doing in in my humble opinion they were doing everything the wrong way. Um, it was really seemed to me to be a, a little bit of a cash grab based on uh, Cream making a cameo and almost famous and, and looking for like the quick dollar to be made um, off of that opportunity rather than really focusing on what the brand stood for and really trying to lay the groundwork to, to relaunch it at that time. And yeah, you know, for me, it's not my proudest moment, but I think it was a moment that needed to happen that, that ended in a confrontation between or uh, uh, yeah, a, a brief confrontation between me and the folks that were managing the brand at the time. And, and, and long story short, uh, I found myself on the outside of a, a cream book release party after having been thrown out by security, which actually, as I mentioned in, in my my editorial note, was was kind of like the the turning point for me. Uh, that was that was the rock bottom moment for me, being on the outside of a cream book release party kind of looking at what i like what my dream was and to see other people running with it um and running with it the wrong direction at that point that was that was really tough but i feel like i I say this in my note as well like maybe the rock gods decided to take mercy on me at that point and figured i had taken enough (laughs) punches to the gut and things started happening and the momentum started swinging the other way and over the course the next 10 or so years, I was able to uh, obtain the rights again. Yeah. Well, and just for listeners to understand this, you know, how personal this is, you know, the, in one of the opening pages of your new, new, newly relaunched Cream magazine, there's a picture of your father over your crib, right? Yeah. Uh, your father, the founder of this magazine, who was sort of a, a character himself, kind of like a robust, volatile, you know, rock and roll character. And there you are, just a little infant, right? And and there's a poster of like a cream poster or a cream picture right over your crib, which so you know, you were baked into this kind of enterprise right from the start. Yeah, I was I was certainly baked into it, born into it. Um the craziest thing about that photo is I'd never seen it before until we started working on the cream documentary uh a few years ago and we uh we had put out like a call for photos and ephemera and all that sort of good stuff. And a photographer came forward with this whole stack of photos of like my parents and that photo of my dad and me. And then I was like, this, this is not only <laughs> this, it, it went from something that I, I wanted to do to something that I felt like I had to do at, at that point. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the documentary because there's a cream documentary. It's on Apple. 
it's really great. It really will instantly give you a, the entire feel and story of that era and what this magazine was about. You know, it was irreverent. It was a little bit sleazy. It was politically incorrect. It was fun and you could laugh and it was sexy and hilarious and dirty. And it kind of, you know, it could have been mistaken for like a pornography, but it was a rock and roll magazine. But I also want to say from my point of view as a journalist and as a writer, and if I was going to recommend things, you know, Lester Bangs, the great rock writer, essayist was, you know, he was really associated with Cream more than any magazine that he ever wrote for. Um, you know, I've taught journalism classes in which I taught one of his pieces that was in Cream magazine. It was uh, Innocence in Babylon, the great kind of uh, travel log of him traveling to, to Jamaica to meet Bob Marley. And it's funny and insightful and so well done. It's a genuinely fantastic piece of journalism. And, you know, that's what also you would find in Cream magazine, in addition to all the funny stuff and amazing photographs and just, you know, a sense of you're on the inside of the rock culture. But so here we are, though, uh, JJ, all these many years later, decades later, and you've got this new Cream magazine and right on the cover, which is great. It's a Ray Pettibone illustration, artist and illustrator, you know, known for his covers of Black Flag albums. That's what I knew him for. And it says, rock is dead. So is print. Right, right on the cover of the very first issue, which is a, in the spirit of the Cream magazine. It's irreverent. It's in your face with uh, both what it's, you know, a challenge, uh, its own personal challenges as an enterprise, right on the cover. Um, but let's talk about what that means. I mean, obviously, these two things are issues with coming out with a rock and roll magazine in the year 2022. There are certainly challenges, and in in the cream spirit, we're leaning right into it. Um, we're we're confronting that on you know before you get to page one, and and our firm belief is is of course um, that neither is dead. They're just harder to find. You know, rock and roll is alive and well. I think what's happened um, over the past couple decades is it's been like micro genre and micro niched to death, and there's no like big tent for rock and roll. And that's really what, what Cream always stood for and what Cream's going to stand for again. And nobody's really doing it right now. So it presents this incredible opportunity for Cream to come back now um, and, and be that big tent. And, and in terms of print, traditional print, certainly having its issues, but indie print is kind of having a moment right now. And for us, it's not about having the biggest audience. Uh, it's about having the most engaged audience. So that, you know, for us putting those two together, rock not being dead and us not, not looking to sacrifice quality for, for scale, um, print felt right. And it's kind of just leaning in to our analog spirit and, and giving people what we're, what we're finding now that it's launched have desperately been missing. Um, there is, there is something about the print experience that is, of its own. It's its own medium. It's not disposable. Uh, you can come back to it. It's, you know, in, in this landscape, it's much easier to stand out in print than it is in, in digital. It's really being welcomed with, with open arms. Um, and, and just like, you know, in Cream 1.0, when everybody else is, is zigging, we're zagging. Uh, and it seems to be working for us. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you 
tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's talk about the core concept here, which is that uh, rock and roll, right? Uh, just, you know, Jan Wenner was in the New York Times uh, just a couple weekends ago saying, uh, you know, rock, rock and roll is pretty much done. It's gone the way of jazz. Um, so, you know, what's your counterpoint? What do you say to Jan Wenner? Oh, where do we start? I mean, that just speaking of that quote, I don't know if you follow our socials, but but we took that quote. And we memified it and we threw it up on our Instagram and let the audience do the talking. So, you know, I, I actually don't need to say anything. If you just look at what people are saying, what the audience is saying, it's really clear that, that, you know, rock isn't going the way of jazz. But by the way, if it did, there's there's nothing wrong with jazz, man. You know, there's some really good jazz out there, but you know, I think that's just coming from a perspective of, of someone who obviously took his enterprise in a different direction was going for different things. And maybe rock and roll uh, as defined by Rolling Stone is dead. That's fine. That's never how cream defined rock and roll. Uh, and that's not how yeah. we're going to define rock and roll going forward. It's alive and well, and there's tons of energy behind it. And some of the, the, the most exciting things for me in, you know, we just relaunched in June. So in these past, you know, few months has been, the younger folks gravitating towards the magazine, young, younger rock and roll fans. We obviously have a built-in audience of people who have, you know, the affinity for the brand and they're doing it for the nostalgia of it all. But seeing younger kids come into the fold and embrace it because there's really nothing for them in this space. Uh, And then, you know, again, proof of concept for us. So I would just say, Listen to the audience. They're telling you it's not it's not dead. Yeah. Well, he's not uh, involved with Rolling Stone. We should point that out. Right. He's he's <laughs> sold out and he's moved on with his life to write memoirs and stuff. But um but uh, no comment there. Um <laughs> but you know, also one of the things that what you observe and it's it's sort of like rock and roll has been declared dead many times through the years and and sometimes even felt dead through the you know the years. And of course, music we're in a different age. It's the digital age. You know, there's no, no art form is at the center of the culture defining everything. It's just, it, it exists more of in a horizontal way across the internet. You can go where you want to go, right? But, uh, and we live in a more uh, diverse culture than we did in the 70s. And, you know, rock and roll got associated with, you know, basically like a white youth culture, of the sixties and seventies. And, and that's the way the world was then, but it's different now. And do you feel like cream can address that? I, I, I do think so. And I think our first issue is kind of indicative of where we're going with it. You know, there, there are a very diverse group of artists that are covered uh, in the first issue, um, you know, turnstile, special interest, uh, ammo and the sniffers, warthog, so we, we have a very keen eye to that. I would say the landscape of rock and roll has changed, but the spirit has not. Um, and so while it's you know, certainly 
a different cast of characters, so to speak. I, I think the the fundamental rock and roll spirit, that DIY mentality, that grit, that scrappiness is still there. And that's really what we looked for uh, and looked to champion. Yeah. Well, you know, just flipping through the first issue, it's a really handsome magazine. It, it really fi- It's big. It's sort of the size of the old Rolling Stone, now that I think <laughs> about it. And uh, it's, a, it's a very large magazine, and it really takes you into little niches that I wasn't necessarily aware of that are really cool and underground. Some of them even feel like, and to be real, to date myself, you know, feel like stuff you might see in like maximum rock and roll back in the old days. You know, there's a, some, there's some punk rock represented, you know, listen, I'm 50 years old. This is going to be in my sweet spot. You're also, you're drawing from people who are in their twenties and I assume aiming the magazine at people who are young and, and the fans of these bands as well. Absolutely. In order for cream to, have a sustainable future, we have to uh, bring more people into that big tent, you know, that big rock and roll tent I was talking about before. So yeah, our aim is to cover new and emerging acts. Uh, at the same time, you flip through the issue, you see we've got a piece on the stove or on uh, on the Who. Uh, we've got Slash in there. You know, there's, there's actually a great piece on uh, the Osmonds. I saw that. Yeah, their <laughs> their infamous metal album. Their infamous metal album, which is secretly... Kind of good. Um, That's what people say that to me all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So we're really trying to just, you know, like with any magazine, I think with just the beauty of a magazine, you look through the table of contents, not every story has to be for every person. Um, You can find the things that that you like, flip through it, come back to it later. Um, And I think that's that's the beauty of it. And, and, you know, what we like to say about about this new sort of 2.0 version of Cream is it's, uh, it's coffee table quality. Uh, but still with that back of the toilet sensibility. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the um, the spirit of the sleaze of the 70s. Um, it's there. It's not as like, um, you know, it fits the times, right? The tenor of the times. Right. Because a lot has happened. I mean, that's the, the documentary about Cream addresses this. And people are saying, listen, some of the stuff that was in there would not fly today. Right. And and this was the same with Rolling Stone, by the way. It was sexist and it could be it was very white and, you know, but that was America in that time. So it was a snapshot of the culture of that time. But that's right. And, and as you know, in the documentary, um, the folks that were there own it uh, and they're they're you know, things that were cool then uh, and they're certainly not cool now. And, you know, just like everything else, cream has evolved. But you know, there's plenty of ways to be irreverent without being cruel or mean or sexist or misogynistic. Um, and I think that stands out in, in the first issue is that like, that I think there's this, there's been this like space where folks have kind of been afraid to go for, for a long time. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. Cream was never afraid of, of going there and, and we're not going to be afraid of going there. We're going to take big swings. We're going to take risks. We're not out there, you know, to be mean, like I said, but we are out there to, have a little fun and hold folks accountable. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there are elements of the magazine that harken back to the original. For instance, you've got a letters page in which people, you know, the editorial voice responds to the readers, which was something that Rolling Stone did too back in the day. They don't do it any longer, I don't think. But um, but it's a cool kind of thing. How, what, here's the question I have: Is um, how often is this magazine coming out? We're uh, we're we're publishing quarterly. Quarterly, okay. So, yeah. you got plenty of time to read these articles. And uh, what is your digital strategy, as the kids would say nowadays, right? Uh, as kids have been saying for the last twenty years. I'm not that old, um, you know. So, you know, are you primarily going to be 
a print product and a thing that is stands in print primarily? We we do have a digital product, a digital subscription. So everything at this point on cream.com is is behind a paywall. Um, you can subscribe digitally for five bucks a month. Um, and each quarterly issue will be put behind the paywall. Then we're going to have two long, at least one to two long read articles, uh, magazine quality articles per week that'll be published digitally. And then of course we've got our entire cream archive, uh, you know, the original print run 69 to 89, uh, behind there. So our digital strategy is, is similar to our print strategy in that it's, it's a subscription driven approach. We are not trying to position Cream as a traditional digital media site. Um, that's that's not the sandbox we want to play in. Traditional digital media aggregates eyeballs and sells them to advertisers. That's not what we want to do. We've positioned Cream 2.0 as an entertainment company. Um, and the goal of an entertainment company is to build long-term relationships with its audience. And the magazine for us, while we do have a digital product, the magazine is the beating heart of what this entertainment company is going to be. And it's also going to be this IP incubator that that can sort of develop talent and voices and story concepts that can be spun off um, outside of its pages. So if we have a really compelling story, um, maybe it becomes a podcast, maybe it becomes a docu-series. Um, there are other opportunities where um, we're going to be championing certain bands and there's going to be a music discovery component to it. And that could evolve over time into a cream music festival, an experiential component. And there's, of course, uh, a merchandise component to it as well. We partner with really interesting emerging illustrators and graphic designers. And so that can evolve and be incubated into merchandise collaboration. So for us, it all starts with that with that leaning into our analog spirit and having that be the soul of cream. And it kind of only feels right to have it be that way, but it's going to be accessible digitally and it's going to be accessible in these other ways over time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the two music outlets that uh, people think of, of the large kind, you know, you have Rolling Stone who are sort of reinventing themselves as almost like a Daily Beast kind of news site uh, online. And you have Pitchfork, which was already an organically uh, digital product. And it's very, you know, it's got a lot of breadth to it, uh, but it doesn't have like a, 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 like strong cultural center, uh, you know, voice to it. It's a lot of voices. Yeah. And so it represents its its generation in a way. Um, so I wonder, um, let, let me ask you this. When's the next issue due out? Uh, it'll be in home the week before Christmas. Well, I'll be curious. So now this is my last question for you. And it's like a really just a, a curiosity I have, which is that you have access to this incredible archive of stuff, uh, from, from cream magazine, including these Lester Bangs things. Um, would you be able to republish you know, all the authors who you published in the past, I mean, was that, would that be part of the, uh, your, you know, would you legally be able to, I guess I'm saying. Well, it's, it's funny you, you asked that my, uh, my day job is as a practicing intellectual property attorney, which I've been doing for, for, uh, <laughs> over 20 years at this point. So, um, we, we put a lot of thought and analysis into, how we set up the archive and the way that you present the article. So um, without getting too far in the weeds, there, there is a, a way that you can do that 
legally within the the uh, the confines of copyright law, and there's ways that you should not do it uh, without asking, you know, for for additional permission. So, I think the archive is in a really really good place. Depending on how you want to experience it, you can you know flip through the pages of the actual magazine. As uh, an aside, it took us like it took us like three years yeah. to source every single issue of of the magazine. But yeah, to answer your question, it's uh, it's all on the up and up, Joe. Well, listen, you know that's what's interesting about. A legacy magazine. It can be like a time machine into a universe that you don't live in anymore, that but that you revere or are curious about, and uh, but also bring you into the present and whatever that you know. There's there's a long circuitous tether between the two, and you know, rock and roll is one of these weird American cultures that we're trying to uh, constantly grapple with, and uh, in some cases bring back to life, <laughs> resuscitate. <laughs> Or at least, like you say, shine a light on and see that it's actually alive. It's just down in the corners and in the dark corners of the of our uh, cultural universe. But J.J. Kramer, Cream Magazine, thanks for coming on Inside the Hive. Thanks for having me, Joe. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.